Before I became a minister, I ran religious education programs, similar to what Ember did with the children here. The biggest part of my job then was working with volunteers. In my setting, we had to recruit 60 of them every year. We had to train them, support them, and help them feel connected to one another. When I was meeting a new team, usually four or five people together, I would try to start with some kind of get-to-know-you activity. They were often silly, icebreaker-type games that you make kids play, but it's fun to make serious adults play them too sometimes. One of my favorites was the classic Two Truths and a Lie. If you haven't played it before, it's pretty simple. When it's your turn to go, you share two true things about yourself and also one lie, one not true thing about yourself. The other players then have to guess which one of those three things is the actual lie. The game is an invitation to be creative, to share about yourself, to play around with identities and first impressions, and enjoy the challenge of trying to trick and fool the people playing the game with you. Now, I had a standard set that I used for all of these games and swore everyone to secrecy so they didn't tell their fellows who might be playing the next night. The first one I would say was that I had visited Cuba in high school. We went on a high school field trip to Cuba. The second was that I had spent the night at Stephen King's house. The third was I had been arrested twice. One of these was a lie, and still is, actually. I had gone to Cuba through a high school Spanish trip in a short window in time when it was legal to do so before the federal government clamped down. I had spent the night at Stephen King's house, too. A previous supervisor of mine was a family member of his, and she invited us there for a board retreat. The lie was about being arrested twice. The twice part was there to make it seem needlessly specific, and that maybe it was true, there was a number attached to it. But I had not been arrested, not once, and definitely not twice. Now I admit that if I was playing this today, I probably would have chosen a different lie. I am more aware now of the loaded and problematic nature of our system of law enforcement, especially regarding disparities in arrest and incarceration rates. My lie was effective in the game because it played with assumptions about the kind of people who would get arrested, i.e. not a college-educated white guy who worked for a church. These are problematic assumptions, obviously deeply ingrained in racism and colonialism, privilege, and other systems of oppression. To my contemporary judgment, my lie skirted a little too closely to these and making light of their dynamics. But there was another reason this lie was effective in the game, effective at questioning people's assumptions, and that was because I worked for a Unitarian Universalist congregation. People, and people thought there that maybe I had been arrested while protesting something. This was not an unreasonable assumption. 
Since the beginning of our tradition, Unitarians and Universalists and Unitarian Universalists together have lived out their values by confronting unjust laws and practicing civil disobedience. Unitarian ancestors like Paul Revere and John Adams literally led a revolution against their government. Later in the 1830s, Abner Neeland, a universalist turned freethinker, was the last person in the United States jailed for heresy, quote, for willfully blaspheming the holy name of God. Before the Civil War, prominent Unitarians, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, helped fund John Brown and his effort to inspire a slave rebellion, an obviously illegal act. Unitarian and Universalist suffragettes pushed the legal boundaries. Susan B. Anthony voted illegally and was arrested and put on trial. When her colleague Elizabeth Cady Stanton, also UU, tried to vote and was blocked by officials, she threw her ballot forcefully into their faces. Most recently, Unitarian Universalists have been arrested protesting everything from war to civil rights to nuclear weapons and also the environment. Despite this legacy, I had not been arrested or really done anything to risk arrest. It wasn't until I came to Fourth Universalist that the idea of confronting the government disobeying laws deliberately became a real possibility. Our sanctuary work with shields undocumented families marked for deportation by sheltering them inside our building, skirted legal areas. We took advantage of legal uncertainties and historic precedent that no house of worship had ever been raided by police or immigration officials. But I admit it wasn't until last spring that I considered being arrested, actually. I considered it because I was asked. An organization called Green Faith, along with Extinction Rebellion and the Jewish Youth Movement, Climate Movement, and the Sunrise Movement, were holding an action against BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world. Now, BlackRock had committed to funding no more fossil fuel projects. And then they backtracked. These environmental groups wanted to highlight BlackRock's hypocrisy and call them back to previous commitments that they had made. Now in the spring, BlackRock was having their annual shareholders meeting and New York City environmental leaders wanted religious leaders to block the doors to their headquarters as people tried to get in. There would be a rally around it and we would lock arms and keep people from entering. The hope was that this act of protest would draw attention to BlackRock's saying one thing and doing another approach to the climate crisis. It was a rabbi friend that first reached out to me and asked if I might be willing to block the doors. She connected me to one of the faith leaders planning it, and we had an hour-long conversation about what it would tail, what legal risk they would be, and what the plan was. Now, I admit, I was nervous. I was raised in an environment that you didn't upset authorities, you didn't disobey those in power, politeness and respect were important. When a police officer or security guard tells you to move, you move. 
My wife and mother were worried about me too, the image of me in handcuffs sitting in jail looming large in their minds. But the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like the right thing to do. I had to ask myself, if not now, then when? We who believe in the climate crisis, who believe in science, who read the news, know that we are at a precipice point. We know that very soon it will be too late, that our climate will change in devastating ways, ways that will cause immense disruption and suffering, not only in the United States, but around the world, and especially to those on the margins. There will be terrible storms and droughts and fires and more epidemics. There will be cities being flooded, parts of New York City that will no longer be habitable where people live right now. Wars will be fought over dwindling resources, and today's migrant crisis that people are worried about right now will seem small in comparison. I have friends who don't want to have children because they are too afraid of what the future of the climate will look like. If not now, then when? If this is all true and science suggests it is, and most of us acknowledge that we are looking down the barrel of a soon-to-be-irreversibly-changed world, we can also know that we can still make a significant difference. What does that mean for us as a people who care deeply about preventing that suffering and leaving the world a better place? If not now, then when? Our partners on the front line tell us that risking arrests is a necessary escalation to get people to pay attention. There is too much complacency. It signals that we mean business, that climate change means business, that we are so serious that this crisis matters that we are willing to put ourselves on the line. You have to believe that there's a particular power when people of faith take such risks. You and I especially hold a moral authority in this world, whether it is fair or reasonable or not. To have worship-attending people arrested moves people, moves the media, moves the politicians in a way that is different than when other people do it. We are harder to dismiss as rabble-rousing, as Antifa anarchists. We are more likely to be trusted to change hearts and minds. We have a unique power, you and I, and this means we have a unique responsibility as well. This is especially true because here in New York City, we have access, unlike most of the people on the planet, to the global headquarters of some of the largest corporations in the world. Corporations that are driven by profit to do terrible things, and they need a moral voice to hold them accountable and draw attention to the misdeeds that they are doing. We can do that, you and I, here in New York City in a way that people all over the world cannot do because these corporations are here with civil disobedience. We can get in their faces, we can make them notice, we can make the news of the world notice. So last spring I said yes. I stood next to ministers and rabbis, lay leaders of congregations and Buddhist 
monks in front of the global BlackRock headquarters, the largest asset manager in the world, and we stop people from getting in. Trained de-escalators and police liaisons on our side circled around, ensuring that we were safe and protected and things did not get out of hand. There were several warnings from police to disperse, and when we did not, they came down the line with handcuffs. Our lawyers walked with us as we were led into the police van, trying to find out where we were going, where they were taking us. We ended up at a police station on the Lower East Side. I shared a cell with the executive director of Green Faith, an Episcopalian priest who led climate actions across the world. They'd unhandcuffed us by then. He told me about how people would get arrested all over the world for climate change, how their activists and staff in Africa and other places, when they got arrested, they had to bribe people, the police, before they got arrested, because otherwise they might be murdered. He said, sitting in the cell in New York City, did not compare to that. We were released after three hours and charged with summons. As we left, we were welcomed back into freedom by a cheering group from the rally. I took the subway home on my wife and son playing at a playground outside our building. Several weeks later, we attended court with our lawyer, who had the charges removed from our record pending we didn't get arrested for a mere 30 days. It felt surprisingly safe, orderly, and yet the story was covered by Reuters and the Financial Times, mentioned so that BlackRock did not get to have their meeting without someone noticing. Our next step is to escalate even further. We're planning an action in October, and we need more people, more people of faith, to ensure that BlackRock and the media take the climate crisis seriously. Numbers make all the difference. The more people, the greater the impact, the more the movement grows, and the more BlackRock and others must pay attention. Now, I know that risking arrest is not for everyone. Risking arrest if you are black or brown or trans or have health concerns may not be the safest or the right choice for you. Many people have real trauma attached to police and our system of incarceration. But for those of us with degrees of privilege, who are more likely to be treated well by law enforcement, who are relatively safe even when under arrest, you must ask yourself, if not now, then when? What is keeping you from risking arrest, from doing everything you can to save and protect our planet and those living on it, from pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, just like those Unitarian Universalists of the past who risked so much. I hope you will consider joining me in October to risk arrest by my side, along with good Christians and Buddhists and Jews and many others from around this city who know that we cannot wait much longer before our world will be forever changed. You will see in the order of service and in the Zoom chat a pamphlet where you're able to sign up, learn more. It's not a commitment, 
It's a, I want to learn. I want to find out more information. There's a sign-up sheet in the back with a pen if you'd like to sign up that way. I hope you will fill it out. I would love to have a team there with me from Fourth Universalist, the blessed arrested, whether we get arrested or not, to show that we are not people who simply perform activism, who are fine with just marching in parades that are labeled protests without anything really at stake. Let me end with a story of one of our spiritual forebears. Henry David Thoreau of Walden fame, many, many years ago, had refused to pay his taxes. He opposed the Mexican-American War and knew that his taxes by paying them would go to fund the unjust violence happening on our southern border. For his refusal to pay taxes, Thoreau was arrested and jailed in Concord, Massachusetts. Soon after, he was visited by his more genteel, although sympathetic friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson was disturbed to see Thoreau in jail. That's not what the Boston gentry did. And he asked him with all earnestness, Thoreau, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau always, one with a good quip and a quick response, retorted forcefully, Waldo, what are you doing out there? This is the question for us, too. If we really believe the world is in great danger, that it is at a tipping point, and that maybe risking arrest will make a difference, what are we doing out here? Do we believe another march, a parade down Central Park West, is the thing that's going to change people's minds? We've done so many of those. We've all created so many beautiful signs with clever responses about there is no planet B. That's all good. It's all important. But we are reaching a point of no return. And when our children and grandchildren ask, what did you do in that moment? We have to ask ourselves, did we do everything that we could? Did we accept every invitation to make a difference, just like our spiritual ancestors did? Susan B. Anthony risked arrest. Thoreau risked arrest. How are they different than us? So join me in October, before it is too late. Join me as the Unitarian Universalists, as people of faith, progressives and liberals and leftists, however you describe yourselves, you are in the legacy of Revere and Thoreau and Anthony and Stanton, who know that there is much at stake and much power that we have. Join me in solidarity with others across this city. Let us be bold together. May it be so, and amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. And in this part of our video and audio podcast, we dive a little bit deeper into the themes of today's service. 
Reverend Schuyler, thanks for a great and very personal message today. You're welcome, Ember. It's great to be here with you. So the blessed arrested, uh, you know, uh, both telling your story about getting arrested, but calling for us to engage in perhaps some civil disobedience uh, to help work towards addressing climate change issues. What inspired this choice of message for today? Well, certainly my experience getting arrested uh, in the spring was was the major impetus and the, and the desire of the organizers to escalate in the fall with a, another action. I think it, on a more fundamental level, it comes from a feeling that there's only so much you can do with the more uh, mainstream forms of protest. You know, I think so many of us have gone to the Women's March and gone to the Climate March and gone to protest um, police violence you know, or, or Black Lives Matter marches. And to some level, those are, are effective and can be really powerful, but they also have been leaving me feeling a bit ineffectual. Um, or, or I think the other way of saying it is that they are, um, they converge on performative. Um, and uh, and they don't, they're not asking people to do a whole lot. Um, and they're, and they're, there's kind of social outings, a lot of these things. And so, um, I, I, I have felt like they're not, they're not, I mean, growing a feeling that they're not enough, essentially, that there's more that we can do and should be thinking about doing. Um, and part of my role as a minister is to build partnerships and to um, accept, accept invitations from people who are doing the work on the front lines who say, you can be helpful here um, in this cause. And so when I was asked to consider risking arrest, um, I had to really think about, you know, what is, what, what am I doing um, that's, that's, that's effective, that's, that's pushing the boundaries of um, organizing around an issue that is really important to me, but also I think also objectively to people of our community and, and faith tradition. Um, and you know, in this particular case, it's about climate change, but it could be for any, any major issue, right? Or a minor issue too. Um, there's a lot of crises right there uh, going on right now. So, so I had to ask myself, like, am I, you know, am I, going to be someone who accepts invitations to to take it to the next level or not. And of course, I have lots of privileges that allow me to do that fairly safely. Um, being you know, clergy is one uh, one of them. Uh, also being a straight white man is another. But I do think that, um, you know, that there's a lot that we all can do that is different than just showing up for a nice walk down Central Park West for a march, right? Like that is not, that's not really being part of the struggle. And uh, being risking arrest is not for everybody, but it, it does indicate a degree of skin in the game and a degree of inconvenience and potential risk um, and uncertainty that that I think is called for in, in regarding to the many issues of our time, whether it's whether it is climate change, whether it's uh, police brutality, whether it's um, abortion rights. There's just a lot that is really really important right now. And unless we're really re willing to put ourselves on the line, those of us who can do so with relative safety, because in this country, despite all the stuff that's going on, white, straight men particularly, but also women and, and you know, a lot of other people can do it, can risk arrest without having a tremendous amount of fear that they're going to be in, in real danger, unlike some of the partners that we've worked with who are 
in other countries where you have to bribe police officers not to kill you after being arrested. Um, and so there is a level of intensity that exists in other places that other activists are risking uh, when they get arrested that's very different than what we're risk risking here. And so I also want to just draw that line that like, you know, there is, uh, part of what I tried to do with this, this reflection was to suggest that like my experience wasn't really that extraordinary um, and none of the activists there, um, you know, we were, it felt very safe, it felt very monitored and there were lawyers with us, checking in with us where we were, what was going on. There was a group waiting for us outside the police precinct. Um, uh, it, it can be done in a way that both is effective in getting media attention and making, a, in making an impact, um, while also, um, we're also escalating it to a way that says like, you know, we actually are willing to take a risk here um, and we, you know, we really care about stuff. We're not just going to be, we're not just pedestrians walking along a street with a sign. Right. Now that has me thinking there was a, a big social media discussion, um, maybe not big, but at least one that I saw <laughs> um, about uh, after, after the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, there was a big march in New York City. Well, there's multiple big marches in New York City, but one of the marches was effectively just like you know, sanctioned by the NYPD and walked along a certain route. You know, and at what point is it a protest versus a parade? Um, you know, when you when you have it when there, when there is no risk whatsoever involved, like you were saying there. And you know, I think um, especially in our social media age, that that we like the optics of going to you know these kind of straightforward protests, but things that might risk arrest, the everyday movement building, that isn't that isn't quite as glamorous to post like, ah, I went to this, you know, three hour planning meeting. It's, it doesn't have quite the glamorous appeal of, you know, being able to get a nice picture with your sign at a protest and post that on online. You know, so there, it, it is a lot rougher to, to do that everyday nitty gritty work of, of movement building. And sometimes it even means not leading which I think is something that many of us struggle with to just be part of a movement instead of being the ones uh, leading it, especially if we do come from more privileged background to, to learn to just listen and to um, follow along with the plan that everybody decides on instead of having to be like, ah, I'm the one in charge here can often be a, a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We have to sometimes supplement ourselves and our own ideas of what, are, what is right and what the thing to do in order to um, further those people who are who are really on the front lines, and I think there's a real there's a real practical uh, reminder of that as as people of faith and as community leaders here at Fourth Universalist, uh, because you know I'm not I'm not a full time environmental activist. Uh, I'm not a full time anything activist. I'm a congregational pastor who you, does activism through that role, um, and so I can't presume to know what the best path forward is around activism and around you know how to make a difference, how to how to push BlackRock to stop investing in new, you know, oil, uh, you know, processes. Um, but I can support those who do that professionally and who come to me and say, "You have power uh, based on your role, based on who you are." And and they say that to our, you know, anyone of faith who's connected to a congregation, right? Um, and I talk about that a little bit in, you know, in my in my sermon about, uh, you know, the optics of what it looks like to have people of faith being arrested versus. People who, you know, frankly look like Antifa that you would see on Fox News being railed against. It's very different. Uh, and so recognizing that there is power there that we have, all of us, um, you know, be, by being connected to a faith community. 
um, that helps change the optics that um, that doesn't mean we have to lead it. You know, in some ways I didn't have to lead anything. I just kind of stood there <laughs> and got handcuffed and got put away in a van and then sat in jail for three hours. Um, uh, but what I did have to do is, is feel like I was part of a trust, an organization that I could trust. Um, and that is very important too, right? It's, this isn't a haphazard event, right? This isn't something that you just kind of wing it, right? You know, there's multiple trainings and conversations about people who are risking arrest, multiple different roles. There's a police liaisons, a number of police liaisons, a number of de-escalators who have been trained to do that. Um, and so you're part of this whole team that exists to support you. Um, and it often is, you know, you're not, it's not about you having the microphone or being the important person. It's about finding your role. And, um, but we definitely need people who are willing to accept the role of risking arrest because that's, that's what's going to grab attention and, and speak to the seriousness of, um, you know, the, the negative actions that places like BlackRock are, are, are doing. Right. And you, you know, you mentioned the optics there and I mean, it's, it's really true that it's, it's easy for people to detach from this to, you know, think like, oh, that's those, those radical, uh, you know, leftists seeking to overthrow the government that care about this. But when they realize that it's just someone they know from their everyday ordinary life, maybe it's someone that they, you know, their kids go to the same school, they go to the same church, then you realize that this, this issue matters to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously the climate crisis is going to be, already is, and is even more going to be you know, something that's going to drastically affect people's lives and to to raise awareness of that you know i can't i can't help but think about um all maybe i wouldn't say the mainstream coverage but at least some coverage that i've seen of the the massive floods in pakistan you know, and the the heat waves that we've had here and in england it's it's been a year that is beginning to feel more and more like you can't really deny that the climate crisis is is on its way and is already here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is. We we know how the weather's changed. We know how the the harsh winters of the past are are barely registering these days. Um, whether we'll be willing to do anything about it or just be like, oh, look, we get to those of us who are able to avoid it, avoid the consequences, right? Just feel like, oh, we get less. It's nicer weather sometimes uh, during the winter, and then it's just hot, or maybe we sit in our air-conditioned homes more? Um, I think it's the other question. And, um, but but there's, a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. And, um, and I think the key thing about climate change is recognizing that it's not, um, it's not, just, it's not just an issue about like, saving the whales, which I think is an objectively important thing to do because other, other beings who are not human beings matter uh, objectively too. Uh, but, but we're talking about people who you know, live in flood zones uh, in Harlem, right? We're talking about people who live um, in, uh, you know, low-lying areas of, of Alabama and Louisiana that are going to be flooded out and, and taken from homes that have sustained their families for generations, and they're going to be they're going to be migrants essentially, you know, unhoused people who are going to be uprooted, and that's going to create a lot of problems for them. It's going to create a lot of people who have to figure out how to support those people, um, and uh, it's a uh, it's not something that can just be like poo-hooed that like oh you know a bunch of swamps have filled in or like. Oh, there are less whales now. That's sad, right? Polar bears are more of a zoo kind of creature than a real creature now, um, and so I think that's really important to recognize. And New York is going to be affected by that. Our city. I mean, there's there's an NPR article about about how you know there are significant areas that are going to really struggle to continue to exist as habitable areas of Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn. 
I suppose as a as a closing question, you you mentioned the these inspirations from our tradition who you know you kind of drew from is there anyone else you know that you would want to mention as someone that whose kind of inspiration you drew on as you considered um getting arrested in the spring yeah i mean i a lot of those people are people who came to mind from our unitarian universalist faith i think what i would stress as far as what i would want everyone listening to take from those examples of, of the people who've been who risked arrest or, or confronted the government in perhaps unlawful ways is to recognize that like I know that risking arrest sounds scary and intense and perhaps even radical, but people of faith and good conscience have been doing it for generations. Um, and many of the people that we lift up in our own hearts and minds, we, that we show to our children and say, this person is who you should be like, are people who did things like risk arrest, right? And so if you want to be one of those people um, who looks back at, on their life and says, I did everything I could, to to confront these major challenges of our day to make sure that your children and grandchildren had a better world or at least a world that wasn't destroyed by climate change or you know where they could get free access to abortion care or you know where people weren't being killed by police all the time right like those are things that you have power to make a, a very evocative and profound uh, statement around by risking arrest and by not doing that, that is a choice that many generations of Unitarian Universalists chose otherwise and risked themselves. Um, many who are very vulnerable in their risking. Um, and so it's not for everyone, and I, I recognize that, but I think I wanna move it. My hope is that we can move it from this thing that like strange radical you know, people do to a, more of a, a much more mainstream thing when it's done safely and, and done in an organized way with trusted partners. Um, is part of our lineage of Unitarian Universalists who have been doing this since the beginning of the American Revolution um, and, and perhaps before. Well, Reverend Schuyler, thanks for the message. Thanks for the call to put some skin in the game and to uh, address this big issue. And thank thanks for sitting down. Thanks. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, please email me if you want to be part of the action in October. I'd love to hear from you. If not that action, maybe a future one.